This was brought to you by The Vine on YouTube and The Storyteller on Facebook. The Blind Owl I remember well, the room was quite dark. I lay still for several minutes in a state of semi-consciousness. I used to talk to myself before I fell asleep. On this occasion I was convinced that I had become a child again, and that I was lying in the cradle. I sensed that there was someone near me. Everyone in the house had long been in bed. It was the hour just before dawn, the time when, as sick people know, one's being seems to transcend the boundaries of the world. My heart was beating hard, but I experienced no fear. My eyes were open, but I could see no one for the darkness was intense. Several minutes passed. An idea, a sick man's idea, came into my mind. I said to myself, perhaps it is she. At the same moment, I felt a cool hand laid on my burning forehead. I shuddered. Two or three times I wondered if it was the hand of Israel, the angel of death. Then I fell asleep. When I awoke in the morning my nurse said to me, my daughter, she meant the bitch, my wife, came to your bedside and took your head in her lap and rocked you like a baby. Apparently a maternal feeling had suddenly awakened in her. I wish I could have died at that moment. Perhaps the child she was pregnant with had died. Had she had her baby? I did not know. Lying in this room of mine, which was steadily shrinking and growing dark like the grave, I had watched the door throughout my waking hours in the hope that my wife would come to me. But she never did. Was not she to blame for the condition I was in? For three years, or, rather for two years and four months. Although, what do days and months matter? To me they mean nothing, time has no meaning for one who is lying in the grave. This room has been the tomb of my existence, the tomb of my mind. All the bustle, noise and pretense that filled the lives of other people, the rabble people who, body and soul, are turned out of the one mold, had become foreign and meaningless to me. Ever since I had been confined to my bed I had been living in a strange unimaginable world in which I had no need of the world of the rabble. It was a world which existed within me, a world of unknowns and I felt an inner compulsion to probe and investigate every nook and cranny of it. During the night, at the time when my being hovered on the boundary of the two worlds, immediately before I sank into a deep, blank sleep, I used to dream. In the course of a single second, I lived a life which was entirely distinct from my waking life. I breathed a different atmosphere in some far-off region. It was probably that I wished to escape from myself, and to change my destiny. When I shut my eyes my own real world was revealed to me. The images that I saw had an independent life of their own. They faded and reappeared at will, and my volition appeared to exercise no control over them. This point, however, is not certain. The scenes which passed before my eyes were no ordinary dream, for I was not yet asleep. In silence and tranquility I distinguished the various images, and compared them with one another. It seemed to me that until now I had not known myself, 
and that the world as I had conceived it hitherto had lost all significance and validity, and had been replaced by the darkness of night. For I had not been taught to gaze at and to love the night. I am not sure whether or not I had control of my arms at such times. I felt, however, that if once I were to leave my hand to its own resources it would begin to function spontaneously, impelled by some mysterious motive force of its own, without my being able to influence or master its movements, and that if I had not constantly kept careful watch of my body and automatically controlled it, it would have been capable of doing things which I did not in the least expect. A sensation which had long been familiar to me was this, that I was slowly decomposing while I yet lived. My heart had always been at odds not only with my body, but with my mind, and there was absolutely no compatibility between them. I had always been in a state of decomposition and gradual disintegration. At times I conceived thoughts which I myself felt to be inconceivable. At other times I experienced a feeling of pity for which my reason reproved me. Frequently when talking or engaged in business with someone, I would begin to argue on this, or that, subject, while all my feelings were somewhere else, and I was thinking of something quite different, and at the same time reproaching myself. I was a crumbling, decomposing mass. It seemed to me that this was what I had always been and always would be, a strange compound of incompatible elements. A thought which I found intolerably painful was this, Whereas I felt that I was far removed from all the people whom I saw, and among whom I lived, yet at the same time I was related to them by an external similarity which was both remote and close. My surprise at the fact was diminished by the knowledge that my physical needs were the same as theirs. The point of resemblance which tortured me more than any other was the fact that the rabblemen were attracted as I was to the bitch, my wife, she, feeling a stronger appetite for them than for me. I am certain that there was something lacking in the makeup of one of us. I call her the bitch because no other name would suit her so well. I do not like to say simply my wife, because the man-wife relationship did not exist between us, and I should be lying to myself if I called her so. From the beginning of time I have called her the bitch, and the word has had a curious charm for me. If I married her it was because she made the first advances. She did so by design and fraud. No, she had no kindness for me. How could she ever have felt kindness for anyone? A sensual creature who required one man to satisfy her lust, another to play the gallant, and another to satisfy her need to inflict pain. Not that I think she restricted herself to this trinity, but at any rate I was the one she selected to torture. To tell the truth she could not have chosen a better subject. For my part, I married her because she looked like her mother, and because she had a faint, remote resemblance to me. And by this time not merely did I love her, but every atom in my body desired her. And, more than any other part of me, my loins. For I refused, I refused to hide real feelings behind a fanciful veil of love fondness, and such like theological terms, I have no taste for literary husbandish, a convention of Pallavi writing by which the scribe substituted an Aramaic word for a Persian one. 
I felt as though both of us had pulsating in our loins a kind of radiation or aureole like those which one sees depicted around the heads of the prophets, and that my sickly, diseased aureole was seeking hers and striving with all its might towards it. When my condition improved I made up my mind to go away, to go somewhere where people would never find me again, like a dog with distemper who knows that he is going to die or like the birds that hide themselves when the time to die has come. Early one morning I rose, dressed, took a couple of cakes that were lying on the top shelf and, without attracting anyone's attention, fled from the house. I was running away from my own misery. I walked aimlessly along the streets, I wandered without set purpose among the rabblemen as they hurried by, an expression of greed on their faces, in pursuit of money and sexual satisfaction. I had no need to see them since any one of them was a sample of the lot. Each and every one of them consisted only of a mouth and a wad of guts hanging from it, the whole terminating in a set of genitals. I felt that I had suddenly become lighter and more agile. My leg muscles were functioning with a suppleness and speed which until then I could not have imagined to be possible. I felt that I had escaped from all the fetters of existence, and that this was my natural mode of movement. In my childhood, whenever I had slipped off the burden of trouble and responsibility, I had walked like this. The sun was already high in the sky, and the heat was intense. I found myself walking along deserted streets lined with ash-gray houses of strange, geometrical shapes, cubes, prisms, cones with low, dark windows. One felt that these windows were never opened, that the houses were untenanted, temporary structures, and that no living creature could ever have dwelt in them. The sun, like a golden knife, was steadily paring away the edge of the shade beside the walls. The streets were enclosed between old, whitewashed walls. Everywhere were peace and stillness, as though all the elements were obeying the sacred law of calm and silence imposed by the blazing heat. It seemed as though mystery was everywhere, and my lungs hardly dared to inhale the air. All at once I became aware that I was outside the gate of the city. The sun, sucking with a thousand mouths, was drawing the sweat of my body. The desert plants looked, under the great, blazing sun, like so many patches of turmeric. The sun was like a feverish eye. It poured its burning rays from the depths of the sky over the silent, lifeless landscape. The ground and the plants gave off a peculiar smell which brought back certain moments of my childhood. Not only did it evoke actions and words from that period of my life, but for a moment I felt as though that time had returned and these things had happened only the day before. I experienced a kind of agreeable giddiness. It seemed to me that I had been born again in an infinitely remote world. This sensation had an intoxicating quality and, like an old sweet wine, affected every vein and nerve in my body. I recognized the thorn bushes, the stones, the tree stumps, and the low shrubs of wild thyme. I recognized the familiar smell of the grass. Long past days of my life came back to me. But all these memories, in some strange fashion, were curiously remote from me and led an independent life of their own, in such a way that I was no more than a passive and distant witness and felt that my heart was empty now, 
and that the perfume of the plants had lost the magic which it had had in those days. The cypress trees were more thinly spaced, the hills had grown more arid. The person that I had been then existed no longer. If I had been able to conjure him up and to speak to him, he would not have listened to me, and, if he had, would not have understood what I said. He was like someone whom I had known once, but he was no part of me. The world seemed to me like a forlorn, empty house, and my heart was filled with trepidation, as though I were now obliged to go barefoot and explore every room in that house. I would pass through room after room, but when I reached the last of all and found myself face to face with the bitch, the doors behind me would shut of their own accord, and only the quivering, blurred shadows of the walls would stand guard, like black slaves, around me. I had nearly reached the river Saran when I found myself at the foot of a barren, stony hill. Its lean, hard contours put me in mind of my nurse. There was an indefinable resemblance between them. I skirted the hill and came upon a small, green enclosure surrounded on every side, side by hills. The level ground was covered with vines of morning glory, and on one of the hills stood a lofty castle built of massive bricks. I suddenly realized that I was tired. I walked up to the saran and sat down on the fine sand on its bank in the shade of an old cypress tree. It was a peaceful, lonely spot. I felt that no one until then had ever set foot there. All at once I saw a little girl appear from behind the cypress trees and set off in the direction of the castle. She was wearing a black dress of very fine, light material, apparently silk. She was biting the nail of one of the fingers of her left hand, and she glided by with an unconstrained, carefree air. I had the feeling that I had seen her before and knew who she was but could not be sure. Suddenly she vanished. Where she had gone, the distance between us and the glare of the sun prevented me from making out. I remained petrified, unable to make the slightest movement. I was quite sure that I had seen her with my own two eyes walk past, and then disappear. Was she a real being, or an illusion? Had I seen her in a dream, or waking? All my attempts to call her face to mind were vain. I experienced a peculiar tremor down my spine. It occurred to me that this was the hour of the day when the shadows of the castle upon the hill returned to life, and that this little girl was one of the old-time inhabitants of the ancient city of Ray. The landscape before my eyes all at once struck me as familiar. I remembered that once in my childhood on the thirteenth day of Nuras I had come here with my mother-in-law and the bitch. That day we ran after each other, and played for hours on the far side of these same cypress trees. Then we were joined by another band of children. Who they were, I cannot quite remember. We played hide and seek together. Once when I was running after the bitch on the bank of the saran, her foot slipped and she fell into the water. The others pulled her out and took her behind the cypress tree to change her clothes. I followed them. They hung up a woman's veil as a screen in front of her, but I furtively peeped from behind a tree and saw her whole body. She was smiling and biting the nail of the index finger of her left hand. 
Then they wrapped her up in a white cloak and spread out her fine-textured black silk dress to dry in the sun. I stretched myself out at full length on the fine sand at the foot of the old cypress tree. The babbling of the water reached my ears like the staccato, unintelligible syllables murmured by a man who was dreaming. I automatically thrust my hands into the warm, moist sand. I squeezed the warm, moist sand in my fists. It felt like the firm flesh of a girl who has fallen into the water and who has changed her clothes. I do not know how long I spent thus. When I stood up I began automatically to walk. The whole countryside was silent and peaceful. I walked on, completely unaware of my surroundings. Some force beyond my control compelled me to keep moving. All of my attention was concentrated on my feet. I did not walk in the normal fashion, but glided along as the girl in black had done. When I came to myself I found that I was back in the city and standing before my father-in-law's house. I do not know why the route I had followed had chanced to lead me to my father-in-law's house. His little son, my brother-in-law, was sitting on the stone bench outside. He and his sister were like two halves of the one apple. He had slanting Turkoman eyes, prominent cheekbones, a complexion the color of ripe wheat, sensual nostrils, and a strong, thin face. As he sat there he was holding the index finger of his left hand to his lips. I automatically went up to him, put my hand into my pocket, took out the two cakes, gave them to him, and said, These are for you for mummy. Mummy. He used to call my wife mummy, for want of a real mother. He took the cakes with some hesitation, and looked at them with an expression of surprise in his Turkoman eyes. I sat down beside him on the bench. I set him on my lap and pressed him to me. His body was warm and the calves of his legs reminded me of my wife's. He had the same unconstrained manner as she. His lips were like his father's, but what in the father aroused my aversion I found charming and attractive in the boy. They were half open, as though they had only just broken away from a long, passionate kiss. I kissed him on his half-open mouth, which was so much like my wife's. His lips tasted like the stub end of a cucumber, they were acrid and bitter. The bitch's lips, I thought, must have the same taste. At that moment I caught sight of his father, the bent old man with the scarf around his neck, coming out of the doorway. He passed by without looking in my direction. He was laughing convulsively. It was a horrible laugh, of a quality to make the hairs on one's body stand on end, and he laughed so that his shoulders shook. I could have sunk into the ground with shame. It was shortly before sunset. I stood up, wishing that I could somehow escape from myself. Mechanically, I took the direction that led to my own house. I saw nothing and nobody in the street. It seemed to me that I was walking through a strange, unknown city. Around me were weird isolated houses of geometrical shapes, with forlorn, black windows. One felt that no creature with the breath of life in it could ever have dwelt in them. Their white walls gave off a sickly radiance. A strange and unbelievable thing was this. 
Whenever I stopped, my shadow fell long and black on the wall in the moonlight, but it had no head. I had heard people say that if anyone cast a headless shadow on a wall that person would die before the year was out. Overcome with fear, I went into my house and shut myself up in my room. At the same moment, I began to bleed from the nose. After losing a great quantity of blood I collapsed upon my bed. My nurse came in to see to me. Before I went to sleep I looked at myself in the mirror. My face was ravaged, lifeless and indistinct, so indistinct that I did not recognize myself. I got into bed, pulled the quilt over my head, huddled myself up and, with eyes closed, pursued the course of my thoughts. I was conscious of the strands which had been woven by a dark, gloomy, fearful and delightful destiny. I moved in the regions where life and death fused together, and perverse images come into being in ancient, extinct desires, vague, strangled desires, again come to life, and cry aloud for vengeance. For that space of time I was severed from nature, and the phenomenal world, and was prepared to accept effacement and dissolution in the everlasting flux. I murmured again and again, Death, Death, where are you? The thought of death soothed me, and I fell asleep. In my sleep I dreamed. I was in the Mohammedai Square. A tall gallows tree had been erected there in the body of the old odds, and ends, man whom I used to see from my window was hanging from its arm. At its foot were several drunken policemen drinking wine. My mother-in-law, in a state of great excitement, with the expression which I see on my wife's face when she is badly upset. Bloodless lips, staring, wild eyes, was dragging me by the arm through the crowd, gesticulating to the red-clad hangman and shouting, string this one up too. I awoke in terror. I was glowing like a furnace, my body was streaming with sweat and my cheeks were burning. In order to get the nightmare out of my mind I rose, drank some water and dabbed my head and face. I went back to bed but could not fall asleep. Lying there in the transparent darkness I gazed steadily at the water jug that stood on the topmost shelf. I had an irrational fear that it was going to fall and decided that so long as it stood there I should be unable to fall asleep. I got up, intending to put the jug in a safe place, but by some obscure impulsion that had nothing to do with me my hand deliberately nudged it so that it fell and was smashed to pieces. I was able to close my eyes at last, but I had the feeling that my nurse had come into the room and was looking at me. I clenched my fists under the quilt, but in fact nothing out of the ordinary happened. In a state of semi-consciousness I heard the street door open and recognized the sound of my nurse's steps as, shuffling her slippers along the ground, she went to buy bread and cheese for breakfast. Then came the far-off cry of a street vendor, mulberries for your bile. No, life, wearisome as ever, had begun again. The light was growing brighter. When I opened my eyes a patch of sunlight reflected from the surface of the tank outside my window was flickering on the ceiling. I felt that the dream of the night had receded and faded like one seen years before during my childhood. My nurse brought me in my breakfast. Her face was like a reflection in a distorting mirror, 
It was so lean and drawn, and seemed to have acquired such an unnatural, comical shape. One might have thought that it had been stretched out by some heavy weight fastened to the chin. Although Nanny knew that Nargali smoke was bad for me, nonetheless she used to bring a Nargali with her when she came into my room. The fact is that she never felt quite herself until she had had a smoke. With all her chit-chat about her family affairs, about her son and her daughter-in-law, she had made me a participant in her intimate life. Stupid as it may seem, I would sometimes find myself ruminating idly about the doings of the members of my nurse's family. For some reason all activity, all happiness on the part of other people made me feel like vomiting. I was aware that my own life was finished and was slowly and painfully guttering out. What earthly reason had I to concern myself with the lives of the fools, the rabble people who were fit and healthy, ate well, slept well, and copulated well, and who had never experienced a particle of my sufferings or felt the wings of death every minute brushing against their faces? Nanny treated me like a child. She tried to pry into every cranny of my mind. I was still shy of my wife. Whenever she came into the room, I would cover up the phlegm which I had spat into the basin. I would comb my hair and beard and set my nightcap straight on my head. But I had no trace of shyness with Nurse. How had that woman, who was so utterly different from me, managed to occupy so large a zone of my life? I remember how in the winter time they used to set up a corsi, a stool under which is placed a lighted brazier and over which blankets are spread. People recline with the lower part of their bodies under the blankets. In this same room above the cistern, my nurse and I and the bitch would go to sleep around the corsi. When I opened my eyes in the transparent darkness the design on the embroidered curtain that hung in the doorway opposite me would come to life. What a strange, disquieting curtain it was. On it was depicted a bent old man like an Indian fakir with a turban on his head. He was sitting under a cypress tree, holding a musical instrument that resembled a setter. Before him stood a beautiful young girl, such a girl as I imagined Bugam Desai, the Indian temple dancer, to have been. Her hands were bound, and it seemed that she was obliged to dance before the old man. I used to think to myself that perhaps this old man had been shut up in a dungeon with a cobra, and that it was this experience that had bent him double and turned his hair and beard white. It was a gold-embroidered Indian curtain such as my father, or my uncle, might have sent from abroad. Whenever I happened to gaze for a long time at the design upon it I would become frightened and, half asleep as I was, would wake up my nurse. She, with her bad breath and her coarse black hair against my face, would hold me close to her. When I awoke in the morning she looked exactly the same to me as she did on those days, except that the lines of her face were deeper and harder. I often used to recall the days of my childhood in order to forget the present, in order to escape from myself. I tried to feel as I did in the, the days before I fell ill. Then I would have the sensation that I was still a child, and that inside me there was a second self which felt sorry for this child who was about to die. In my moments of crisis one glimpse of my nurse's calm, pallid face with its deep-set, dim, unmoving eyes, 
thin nostrils and broad, bony forehead was enough to revive in me the sensations of my childhood. Perhaps she emitted some mysterious radiation which created this peace of mind in me. On her forehead there was a fleshy birthmark with hair sprouting from it. I do not remember having noticed it before today. Previously when I looked at her face, I did not scrutinize it so closely. Although Nanny had changed outwardly her ideas remained what they had always been. The only difference was that she evinced a greater fondness for life, and seemed afraid of death, in which she reminded me of the flies which take refuge indoors at the beginning of the autumn. I on the other hand changed with every day and every minute. It seemed to me that the passage of time had become thousands of times more rapid in my case than in that of other people, and that the alterations I daily observed in myself should normally have been the work of years, whereas the satisfaction I should have derived from life tended, on the contrary, towards zero and perhaps even sank below zero. There are people whose death agonies begin at the age of twenty, while others die only at the very end, calmly and peacefully like a lamp in which all the oil has been consumed. When my nurse brought me my dinner at midday, I upset the soup bowl, and began to shriek at the top of my voice. Everyone in the house came running to my room and gathered at the door. The bitch came along with the rest, but she soon went away again. I had a look at her belly. It was big and swollen. No, she had not had the baby yet. Someone went to fetch the doctor. I was delighted at the thought that at any rate I had given the fools trouble. The doctor came, with his beard three hands breadths long, and prescribed opium for me. What a marvelous remedy for the pains of my existence. Whenever I smoked opium my ideas acquired grandeur, subtlety, magic and sublimity, and I moved in another sphere beyond the boundaries of the ordinary world. My thoughts were freed from the weight of material reality and soared towards an empyrean of tranquility and silence. I felt as though I was born on the wings of a golden bat and ranged through a radiant, empty world with no obstacle to block my progress. So profound and delicious was the sensation I experienced that the delight it gave me was stronger than death itself. When I stood up from beside my brazier, I went over to the window facing onto the courtyard of our house. My nurse was sitting in the sun cleaning some vegetables. I heard her say to her daughter-in-law, We all feel very sorry for him. I only wish God would put him out of his misery. So the doctor, apparently, had told them I was not going to get better. It did not surprise me at all. What fools all these people were. When she brought me my medicine an hour later her eyes were red and swollen with weeping. She forced a smile when she saw me. They used to play act in front of me. They all used to play act in front of me, and how clumsily they did it. Did they suppose I did not know myself? But why was this woman of all people so fond of me? Why did she feel that she had a share in my sufferings? All that had happened was that someone had come to her one day and given her money, and she had thrust her wrinkled black nipples, like little buckets, between my lips, and I wished that the canker had eaten them away. 
Whenever I saw them now, I felt like vomiting to think that at that time I had greedily sucked out their life-giving juice while the warmth of our two bodies blended together. She had handled me all over when I was little, and it was for this reason that she still treated me with that peculiar boldness that you find only in widows. Just because at one time she used to hold me over the latrine, she still looked on me as a child. Who knows? Perhaps she had used me as women use their adoptive sisters. Even now she missed nothing whenever she helped me to do the things which I could not do on my own. If the bitch my wife had shown any interest in me, I should never have let Nanny come near me in her presence, because I felt that my wife had a wider range of ideas and a keener aesthetic sense than my nurse had. Or perhaps this bashfulness of mine was merely the result of my obsession. At any rate I was not shy of my nurse, and she was the only one who looked after me. I suppose she thought it was all a matter of destiny, and that it was her star that had saddled her with this responsibility. In any case she made the most of my illness and confided all her family troubles and joys to me, kept me posted on current quarrels and feuds, and in general revealed all the simplicity, the cunning, and the avarice which went into her makeup. She told me what a trial her daughter-in-law was to her and spoke with such feeling on the subject that one would have thought that the younger woman was a rival wife who had stolen a portion of her son's love for her. Obviously the daughter-in-law is good-looking. I saw her once in the courtyard from my window. She had gray eyes, fair hair, and a small, straight nose. This was brought to you by The Vine on YouTube and The Storyteller on Facebook. Our podcast is at Roger Hansen on Anchor 2. Support us on either Anchor and Patreon at Roger Hansen as well. We thank you for your participation. If you enjoyed please like, subscribe, share, make comments. We love feedback.